Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 66th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Andy Cook, co-founder and CEO of Tetra, a knowledge management system for high-performance teams. Okay, this could be my most transparent interview ever. When you're asking most startup founders how things are going, the majority are likely going to say, we are crushing it. However, building a startup is really, really hard, and growing a successful company is rarely, if ever, a straight line. Andy recently published a series of blog posts where he shares the intimate details on the ups and downs of building a startup, so I was really excited to chat with him about the really deep and gritty details that go into building a company, including the depths of nearly failing to plowing through and coming out the other end to a profitable path for Tetra. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Andy's background and how he started a rental marketplace called Rentabilities with his brother and how they were able to convince Dharmesh Shah from HubSpot to write the first angel check, the aha moment behind Tetra and the current state and scale of the company, a ton of details on the ups and downs he's experienced building a company from the ground up, including lots of info on fundraising, finding the right sales model, and how they got to profitability. The importance of staying transparent when running your business, especially with employees, tips for communicating with investors, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. As I previously stated, this is the 66th episode of the VentureFizz podcast. So why does that number matter? Well, we now have the largest collection of interviews of the top entrepreneurs, executives, and investors. I believe Dave Gerhardt's awesome Tech in Boston podcast got to about 65 episodes. So I'm really excited and honored to have the top entrepreneurial podcast in the area. If you haven't searched through our library of interviews, you should probably check them out as there are lots of episodes that you don't want to miss. Go to venturefizz.com backslash podcast for all the episodes. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Andy. Andy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, I was really excited to talk to you because um, I just feel like you have this approach uh, as it relates to being a founder where you're incredibly transparent. You can read the blog posts that you publish on your company website. Um, I remember there was a uh, Tech in Boston podcast you did with Dave Gerhardt a couple of years ago that was incredibly just open and honest about everything. So, you know, most startup founders, when you ask them, how's the company going? They're all going like, oh my God, we're killing it. We're crushing it, right? It's unbelievable. We're scaling the mountain and we're going to, you know, go public someday. But you're so transparent and so honest about your company and everything you're going through. Like, what is it about? that level of transparency, like why do you think it's important uh, in terms of your own style? Um, I think transparency is just really important. It's a habit that I learned at HubSpot and saw at scale um, internally, they're really, really transparent. Um, so I saw the power of that. Uh, internally, I think transparent is transparency is super important for every company. The reason being is that there's just so many decisions you have to make as a fast moving company that uh, there's really no way for any single person to be able to make every single decision. And if you tried to do it, you'd end up with decision-making bottlenecks. So what you need to do is scale decision-making. And the only way to scale decision-making is to give everyone the same access to information as you have as a founder or the CEO, uh, because you really can't expect someone to make the same exact decision you would make if they, uh, they don't have the same level of information. Um, so we're just really transparent internally. Uh, and then we decided to be transparent uh, externally too. Um, there's two main reasons, I guess, three main reasons. Uh, one, it's just like the way I am. I'm just like unabashedly honest and just like tell the truth and can't really help myself. Uh, I guess my mother taught me well. Um, so the other reason is that there's a lot of discrepancy uh, in the access to like information and opportunities that people have out there in the world. We're trying to be really honest um, and transparent about like all the learnings and stuff so that other people can have access to that information and those conversations um, as well. Um, and then just like startups are hard. And I think when you see like everyone's killing it uh, and like that's what they're saying. And then internally, you know that you're not killing it. And in fact, like maybe your startup is failing. Um, it creates just this like sense of despair. Like, why is everyone else doing so great? And I'm not. Um, so like, we just want to tell the truth and show everyone in the world, like, Hey, we're not killing it, but you know, we're figuring it out and we're constantly improving and we're just like you, um, so that there isn't that sort of like, 
um, mentality that like everyone's doing better than you, which can be kind of, uh, kind of demoralizing at times. <laughs> yeah, no, you bring, it keeps it very real in terms of, you know, how you present yourself and your company. So it's, uh, you know, it's very humble. Now let's go way back. Right. So just growing up, where, where did you grow up? What did your parents do for work? Um, so I'm uh, from Massachusetts, born and bred. Uh, I grew up in Hanover, Mass, uh, which is on the way to the Cape in a region called the South Shore, kind of south of Boston. Um, my parents are both working class parents. Um, my mother teaches middle school um, in the town next door to Hanover. And my father owned a landscaping business, which he operated for 30 years. Now, as, as a child, like, um, do you, did you think you were entrepreneurial even from kind of like the, you know, foundation years? I guess I never thought I was entrepreneurial, but looking back on it, I definitely was. Um, like my father owned his own business. And so the idea that like you would have your own business and make your own way and make your own money was never a foreign thing to me. And there was never any pressure to, you know, go to school and then get a job at, um, I guess it would have been like IBM in the eighties, which would probably be Google today, but like get like a real job, you know? Um, but yeah, like I was always trying to make money when I was a kid, um, just because we didn't have allowance and if you didn't make your own money, uh, and like earn your own money, you couldn't go buy your own candy and toys or whatever you wanted. Um, so yeah, I used to like ride my bike around town, collecting cans on the side of the road. Uh, whenever my neighbors would have a yard sale, I would set up like a lemonade stand, um, or even like sell my old toys I didn't want. Um, every single summer from like the age of 10, I would go work for my dad, um, like a day or two a week. Uh, and he'd pay me like below minimum wage under the table. Uh, don't tell child services, but, uh, <laughs> kind of make money and just kind of learn that if you put in the work and you're creative, you can figure out, uh, how to make some extra money, like from very early on as a child. And then you went to UMass and started your first company while still in school with your brother, Alex, right? Mm-hmm. So how'd you come up with that idea and like, what was it? So, um, like I said, I grew up, uh, working in my dad's landscaping business, uh, during the summers and he used to rent a lot of equipment, um, from like the local rental store owners around the area, um, whenever you had to do a job. And so one of the guys, um, who operated a local rental store, um, was in like a town next door, uh, called country rentals. And it was this guy named Steve. Uh, and at the time, my brother and I were learning how to build websites. Um, he's two years older than me, but we were kind of like figuring it out um, while we were in high school. And this was before like, you know, there was all the access to information and unlimited tutorials online. So it's kind of like figure it out as you go. Uh, and my father knew we were building websites and then was talking to this guy, Steve, who owned the rental store and realized that uh, he needed, Steve needed a new website for his rental store. So he introduced Alex and I uh, to Steve and um, we built him a website. And the whole premise of the site was just to like fill out an email form and say what you wanted. Um, and then they would reply back to you. But as soon as we launched the website for the rental store, they started getting like tons and tons of emails and couldn't keep up with it. And so like through a long uh, series of iterations, we eventually built a whole online ordering system where we could hook up uh, their inventory management system to their front end website. And they could just take orders online, kind of like open table for renting stuff. Um, so we started, we worked on that uh, throughout college. Um, Alex and I both went to UMass. We actually lived together for like two and a half years. Um, and we just like constantly worked on the business. And eventually we ended up building a rental marketplace by stitching all the stores that we had together into one centralized place. Whereas a consumer, you could come on our site, uh, find like what you needed to rent, who had it, what was available, check out the pricing, the delivery, all that. And they just book it online from a local merchant. And that company ended up like you entered mass challenge and won money, you know, you're awarded money from mass challenge. And then you actually raised funding from folks like Dharmesh Shah. So how'd, how'd you get someone like Dharmesh to invest in your company? Um, so getting Dharmesh, uh, as our first angel investor, um, and the company was called Rentabilities. Um, it's a pretty funny story. Um, so at mass challenge, um, which I'm assuming everyone knows, but it's kind of like a local startup competition. Uh, well, I think it's global now. Um, but it's a startup competition where companies can enter and, um, they don't take an equity stake and you can win money if you're one of the top startups out of like 150 or something like that. 
Um, so we did it the very first, my brother and I, Alex, we did Mass Challenge the very first year. Um, we actually heard uh, the, the CEO, John Harthorn, on like a radio ad. And we were like, oh, we should, we should enter that um, like right before I graduated. Um, and we ended up getting in. Um, and every Friday at Mass Challenge, they would have a founder come in, usually a local founder from Boston, and kind of do a talk about like lessons learned um, and just like give some advice to some young aspiring um, founders of new companies. Um, and one of those people who came in was Dharmesh Shah. And interestingly enough, I had read uh, his book that he co-wrote with Brian Halligan uh, called Inbound Marketing because we needed to get customers and I literally didn't know how to like do online marketing. So I just read the book to figure it out. And I just like totally loved it. I read it in like two days. So when I saw Dharmesh was coming in to Mass Challenge to talk, I was like super jazzed and it was like early in the morning for me, which was like 10 a.m. Um, it's like staying up till two in the morning every night at those times. Mm -hmm. um, and so I like wanted to be alert and I went out to go get a coffee right before it. Um, and then like came up and then, um, or I was going to go hop in the elevator back to Mass Challenge's floor. And I hear like, hold the elevator. And I like, look, and it's Darmesh. Um, I'm like, oh my God, it's like Darmesh. And so like, of course, that would be the time to give an elevator pitch, right? But I like was so starstruck uh, <laughs> that I just like couldn't even do it. So I just said like, good luck. And he said, thanks. And like, that was it. So I thought I blew it. Um, but then I listened to his talk and I took a bunch of notes while he was talking. Um, and then afterwards, I went to my cubicle, grabbed my book, had him autograph it, talked to him a little bit. And then I published a blog post called 14 Startup Lessons by Dharmesh Shah, um, which were like the lessons that he shared during the talk and published it. And it went viral um, in like the entrepreneurial community at the time, which was like 300 retweets or something like that. Um, and like Dharmesh read it and commented on it. So we got to know, I got to know him through that um, and just like kept in touch with them. And then when we eventually decided to raise funding, we reached out to Dharmesh and we, we sent him an email that was uh, set up like a blog post that was like four reasons you should invest in two local Boston entrepreneurs. And the fourth reason was like, join us, um, like help us succeed. Uh, and so he ended up replying back um, with an email. It was at like, it was like a Friday night or something like that um, with just a response that said, congratulations, you unlocked the investor commitment uh, 2 a.m. on a Friday night badge. This was back when Foursquare was big. Right. Um, you know, so that was like a big deal. It's um, like a couple, like, I think it was like a $20,000 check, which felt like an extraordinary amount of money at the time. So just really exciting. And that's how we got our first angel investor ever. That's awesome. And then you eventually did go down this journey and Rentabilities didn't work out. So, like, what happened? And then the company was there was an aqua like an acquisition, but it was more of an aqua hire by HubSpot, right? Yeah, it definitely was a talent acquisition, and I I like to be upfront about that um, because I feel like you see again going back to the very beginning of the interview, I feel like you see all these like acquisitions that are happening, and it's like we're so uh, excited to be joining X company, and like there's even a meme about it called Our Incredible Journey. Um, but like the reality is, you know, maybe everyone got hiring bonuses, but you like lost most of the money and didn't actually succeed and make a return for your investors and yourself. So, um, I, I would say it was a success in the fact where we got back some of our investors money instead of none of it. Um, and like that felt good and we returned the money to most of our angel investors, but, um, it definitely wasn't like a huge resounding success where we're like, everyone got rich. Right. Yeah. All right, well, let's fast forward to what you're doing today. So what's what's your current company? Uh, so my current company I'm working on is called Tetra. Uh, we build internal knowledge sharing software for uh, growing teams. Um, specifically, the product helps uh, growing teams uh, answer repetitive questions, onboard new team baits, and just make sure everyone's on the same page by centralizing all of your company's documents um, and like chat messages into a central sort of source of truth that you can um, just like query right from Slack. And how'd you come up with the idea with your co-founder? Uh, so my co-founder's name's Nelson, um, Nelson Joyce. Uh, we actually met in middle school. Um, we've been friends for like 17 years. Um, wow. He grew up in Hanover as well and then happened to be working at HubSpot when I joined HubSpot. Um, and so the chief product officer at the time, David Cancel, teamed us up. It was a mix of like new blood versus HubSpot blood and we really um, hit it out of the park. Um, and we came up with the idea for Tetra while we were actually growing our team um, inside of HubSpot, which was like a skunk work style startup inside the company called Leiden. 
Um, and for the first like year while we were working on that, it was just the two of us, Nelson and I, like basically doing everything. And then about a year in, we got uh, more what HubSpot calls budget, which is basically headcount. And we had four engineers added to our team overnight. Um, so as you can imagine, like any growing team or startup, uh, there was a ton of knowledge transfer that had to happen and like getting everything out of our heads into our team's head. And that was compounded by the fact that the engineers that got added to our team were in Dublin. So there was a five hour time difference as well. So we needed a central place to put, like write everything down and basically aggregate everything that the team needed to know. And um, like we base, we went out and looked for like a wiki um, that was like simple to use, um, easy to add information and connected to our chat tool. And there's just like nothing out there. Um, and like Slack was blowing up at the time and we just were like, why hasn't anyone done what Slack did for chat, but for like long form documentation? And that's where we came up with the idea. And you initially built the product on Slack, right? Like that's kind of the first iteration of your product. Yeah, exactly. So um, we, we came up with the idea and then waited for about nine months to leave HubSpot and go do it. Um, we kind of had, a, we had a milestone that we wanted to hit at HubSpot um, that we kind of just like promised the executives that we would hit. Um, and like, we didn't want to, you know, abandon our team either in a bad spot. Um, but the funny thing was, um, like the advice I always give to founders is when you have an idea, it's really easy just to go like jump on it and start building it. But what you should really do is take a step back and not build the idea, like actively try not to do the thing that you're thinking about. And if the problem keeps coming up over and over again, it's probably a good idea that one, you're interested in and two, like the use case that comes up, uh, comes up frequently enough where it's not just like a one-off problem that like is one and done. Um, so we couldn't get this idea out of our heads. Um, we left HubSpot in October 2015 to start Tetra. Um, the original name was Nowl, but we changed it to Tetra. Um, and Tetra is like a type of fish that swim together in schools. Um, I had them in my fish tank growing up. Um, and yeah, the well, the original, original version, uh, the OG version, uh, <laughs> we actually built on top of WordPress. It was uh. kind of like internal blog. We did a ton of customer development. Everyone said they would use it. We had like 20 teams lined up, built the thing in like a couple of weeks, gave it to them, and then no one used it. Mm -hmm. um, we were like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just made a huge mistake. Um, but then like we dug into that more. And uh, what we found was people, the teams that we like got as beta users had the problem. They just forgot to use the product. And the reason why it didn't hook into their existing workflows that they were already used to so then we were like, oh, well, what if we hook this up to Slack, which just launched their platform at the time? And they were like, oh, well, I would definitely use that. Like, I would pay for that. So we scrapped the whole version we um, like had been building for three months and built an entirely new version 100% on top of the Slack's, uh, Slack platform. Like literally used their API as a backend and just rebuilt the front end. Um, launched that and had like 200 teams sign up in the first 48 hours for that. Wow, okay. So, um, with more of the WordPress version, it was like another application that someone had to go and use, whereas everyone's living in Slack already. So it was just an extension of their workflow already. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so today, what's the you know size of your business, employees, scale? Just you know, what, just get a, get a sense of you know where Tetra's at today. Yeah, totally. Whenever someone asks me uh, how the business is going, I always like to start with revenue. Um, <laughs> it's the the source of truth metric. Um, so we actually just passed 500k ARR, um, which I'm really excited about. Bought some balloons for the team. Got a custom puzzle made. It was really fun. We hit that last week. Um, so yeah, we're like a little bit over 500k ARR. Um, about 460 customers um, all across the world. And our team is uh, six full-time people about to be seven in December. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on hitting that important milestone. Thanks. Now, is it companies of all sizes using Tetra? Um, yeah. So I would say our sweet spot are teams that are between 15 and 150 people that are growing. Um, but we do have teams that are smaller than 15 and teams that are larger than 150 people. Um, but I'm a big believer in just like really, really focusing on um, one core uh, use case and group um, of customers because it's just really easy to spread yourself too thin trying to build a product, especially as a small team. So we're zoned in on that 15 to 150 people range. So focus, focus, yep. is focus, always focus. <laughs> All right. So we're going to dig deep into 
what was a four-part blog series that you can find on Tetra's website that Andy was so transparent about the ups and downs of building the company. So I thought this would be amazing to kind of dig even a level deeper into uh, uh, the whole story here. So as a second-time founder, uh, was it easier to raise initial capital more the angel seed rounds? Um, you know, now that you kind of had some credibility, you had a network, like what was that experience? Like I got a new idea. I need to raise some seed capital. Yeah, it was incredibly, uh, it was way easier to do it the second time around. Um, when like the first, during my first company rentabilities, um, it was just so hard to raise funding. Um, one, it was a different time, you know, that was like, I don't know, five or eight years ago or something like that. So there was just like less angel investors and less um, transparency around like who was even investing. Like AngelList was just getting going. Um, but it was just like really hard because as a first time founder, you're learning so much. Like you have to learn how to like do business stuff. And we were also like teaching ourselves how to actually like code web apps. Uh, and then also we had to build out our network. We didn't know anyone because we're like, we were like 20 one like 23 so it was just like so much time and effort that went into that and we just were always like we were basically always fundraising for rentabilities which was tough and like getting checks in like dribs and drabs like almost basically always about to go out of business and run out of money um with tetra it just was so much easier because i had my network that i had built up over the years just like being a member of the boston startup ecosystem and from working on rentabilities um, and then also I had gotten to know all of the HubSpot executives as well while I was there, um, and like really made an effort to get to know them and like expose myself to them. So when we wanted to raise funding this time around, um, we actually were able to get like 300 K, uh, committed within like 48 hours or something like that. Um, the very first check-in was David cancel. Um, we like just went up to catch up with them, uh, and like drink a beer. He had, I think he'd been working on drift for about a year. And at the end of the conversation, uh, you know, David said like, all right, well, if you raise funding, let me know. And we had literally, Nelson and I had literally just decided to raise fund, uh, raise like <laughs> fundraising earlier that day. So we were like, yeah, well, we're raising. And he was like, oh, uh, okay. I was like, <laughs> speaking of which, <laughs> yeah, like, speaking of which I was like, are you in? And he was like, yeah. And I said, how much? And he told me the amount. And then I said, all right, we got you in for this much. Like, first angel um so like that was the first check and then we got mike volpe after that in the boss syndicate um so we came out strong with like 300k and then um raised from there um another nine nine hundred and fourteen thousand in that first round well what i admire about the hubspot alums and even current hubspot folks uh like brian halligan and dharma shah who are still you know steering the company that they have uh, always, you know, invested back, right? Like, you know, you hear about the PayPal mafia and, you know, HubSpot's very similar where uh, all these founders have spun off and started companies and you see the initial investment capitals from, you know, current HubSpot or former HubSpot folks. So it's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, they're just really, really good about supporting their alumni, um, which, they don't, which they don't have to do. They choose to do it, um, which I think is just awesome of, of them and all the executives there. So you raise this initial round of capital and it gets you so far, you have a little bit of a runway, but then at some point, you know, you have to go and raise an institutional round of, of venture capital. So what's, you know, you hadn't done that yet. What was that experience like? Um, so we started trying to, so let me back up. Um, so we raised 914,000, um, hired a few folks, like rebuilt the product for a third time, started closing customers and like things were good. Um, and then we got to about like 8k, 10k MRR and, you know, the default that you, like you pay or most founders think is like, you go raise your next round, right? Like you raise your seed round, then you go raise your series A and B through round Z and that's how you get it done. Um, so like just kind of the default for us was like, all right, we got to go raise this institutional round. Um, like that's what we were driving towards. And we, I started doing it and it just wasn't going well, um, couple of reasons like one the space we were in is a mature space like knowledge management wikis that's been around for a long time and it's not something like new and shiny um and we could have you know added like a bunch of buzzwords like ai which a couple of our competitors um have done but it just didn't feel authentic because i was like yeah then we're not going to really do anything with ai like we'd just be making it up <laughs> um 
So there wasn't anything like new about it. And when people asked us like, oh, well, what's your secret sauce? It was just like, we're going to work hard and like just outcompete everyone. Um, blockchain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Documentation on the blockchain. Doc blocks. Oh, man, we got a new idea here. Here we go. Um, so there was that. And then like also, I think just we when you decide to raise institutional capital, it's a huge decision and you are setting your company on a path of basically IPO or bust, right? Like you have to get the billion dollar valuation for the investors to make their money back using their fund model, which is fine. And like, that's that's a hugely successful model that a ton of companies have follow, followed to make like billions and billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, but like looking at us, I just didn't see like a super clear path on how we would definitely get to a billion dollar valuation. Um, so like, I think my story, like they could probably, like the VCs could probably just sniff out like, okay, like they have a business here and they're, you know, they're doing well and like, they know what they're doing, but like, they don't want to do the billion dollar or bus method. And like, you really have to commit to that as a founder. So we took a step back after, you know, talking to like a dozen or two VCs and just realized like, maybe we don't want to raise institutional capital. Like maybe this is for us. Like we have a business, we can keep growing it. We just have to stay alive. Like let's do it our way. So we decided to do that. And then what was the reality of your business at that point in time? Um, the, the short version is not good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we were, this was like July, 2017 or so. That was when, you know, we kind of decided to like fold the cards on trying to raise institutional capital. Um, and we didn't have much money left in the bank and our burn was like astronomically high for the amount of revenue we were making. I don't remember the exact numbers, but like we probably had like, uh, maybe less than $200,000 in the bank and we were burning like 40 to 50 grand per month. Um, so it was like four months of runway if that, um, and Which like, it's going to be incredibly stressful, right? Like you've got payroll and people counting on you and you're like, oh my God, if we don't raise or if we don't, you know, do something, we're going to be out of business in four months. Totally. Uh, it is, it is incredibly stressful. Luckily though, the thing that I had been doing was being actually honest and transparent with my team the entire like way. Um, every single month we do a monthly recap where I share the financials with everyone in the company, like the profit and loss so that everyone in the company knows how much cash we have in the bank, how much money we're burning and how many months of runway we have. Um, so the good thing is like the team knew this situation um, and like it wasn't a surprise where it was like, you know, we thought everything was fine and now all of a sudden we're running out of money. What the heck? Like that happens all the time and it just really sucks to do that to someone and like their livelihood. So that took a huge amount of stress off of me with like having to have this moment where it was like, surprise, we're almost out of money. Uh, but we did need to figure out how to like get, how to get uh, to survival. So uh, I made a plan, um, which I can dive into um, and shared it with the team. And then we just executed like, like heck on it. Well, but what was the challenge? So you had a lot of customers actually, like a, you know, for any startup, you know, a considerable amount, yet the company was like heading towards this end of the road. Was it like an acquisition channel challenge? Like, like where was, what was the barriers that you're, you're faced with? Um, so it was kind of like everything wasn't clicking. Um, so like the thing people always talk about in the startup community is product market fit, which is like, you need the right product for a big enough market. And when you hit those two things, like everything's hunky dory and you grow really fast. Um, but it's a really good framework that I first heard from Brian Balfour, uh, who's the founder of Reforge. He used to be the VP of growth at HubSpot, which is how I got to know him. Um, and he, he calls it the four fits framework, which is product market fit isn't good enough. You also need channel fit and model fit, meaning you have to have an acquisition channel and a business model where the economics work out that you can um, like basically grow the business um, with like an acquisition channel and a model that makes sense. So like for us, for Tetra to put this actually in less hypothetical context, um, we had a product, which was like internal documentation and we had deliberately built it to be really simple and easy to use. Um, that was kind of like our um, bread and butter was like, we're much easier to use than the competition. And like, you don't have to train your workforce on like how to use this 
intranet or like knowledge management tool. They can just figure it out, similar to Slack. Um, and then we had a market, which was basically growing teams like startups and digital agencies. And then our channels were like content and the Slack app directory. But our model we were using was an inside sales model. And the problem with that is with an inside sales model, you have a cost of customer acquisition, which is like, you know, a couple thousand dollars um, that you have to like pay the sales rep to close the deal. But because the product was so simple, there really wasn't any whiz bang features for the sales rep to sell. And also like people didn't want to pay a lot for the product as well. So we basically like weren't making any money when you factored in cost of customer acquisition and this like the cost of a sales rep um, with what our customers were willing to pay. Um, and we had kept increasing the price to cover the sales um, team and like basically priced ourselves out of the market um, and like sales went down. So we ended up moving away from inside sales to a touchless sale, lowered the price, and then that like fixed a lot of problems for us. And how do, how do people find your product then if it's a self-service acquisition channel through the web versus you know a salesperson that's out there hunting for you? One of the things that we did really early on, which in hindsight was smart and took a lot of pressure off of us, um, like as we were building this business, was we set up two acquisition channels that were kind of sustainable. The first was we listed ourselves, we integrated with Slack really early on and listed ourselves in their Slack app directory. And in the early days, that was like pretty much all of our acquisition, right? And we had huge companies coming, coming in through the Slack app acquisition, uh, Slack uh, app directory. Uh, um, like Walmart and the Texas Rangers and Staples. And it was kind of like the wild west at the time where like literally anyone could opt the Slack app and like add it to the, like the fortune 100 companies Slack instance. Um, so that was like a steady stream. And then that started to trickle off as there was more competition in Slack, like locked lock down some of the ability to add like apps to any, um, account. Um, but the other thing we did was we hyper tooled our entire marketing website around the term Slack wiki or wiki for Slack. Um, which I did a bunch of keyword research on and realized it was growing every month. So like more people were searching for a wiki connected to Slack and we ranked first for that for like a year. So that gave us a step, both those two uh, acquisition channels gave us a steady stream of new people coming in every single month that we could kind of like sell to and try to convert into paid. Um, so yeah, it was just like basically those two. And now it's like a whole range of channels, but it's, it's mostly just content and integrations. So this, you know, June of 2017-ish timeframe was when you kind of went through this evolution of, okay, we're not going to raise institutional funding. We need to get, you know, this $40,000, $50,000 burn rate down to where you created this thing called Project Gemini, which was, which Gemini, I guess that's because it was June? Uh, no, actually. Because no? I'm like, I'm a June baby. So I'm like, oh, I didn't even Gemini. think about that, but that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it, so we had a tradition of naming projects after uh, rocket launches. Um, so we're like, when we rebuilt our editor, we called it Redstone. Um, so I think the next rocket launch after Redstone was Gemini, but that's awesome that that worked out for June too. I'm going to go share that with the team after this. <laughs> so you went from like, okay, let's do the basics. You need more revenue than expenses to equal profit. So what was that like? You know, you, you just talked about your sales and your acquisition model, but how did you finally get to the point where you were generating more cash than you were burning? Yeah. Um, so just for context, Project Gemini was our code name for get to profitability. Um, so like I looked at all of our expenses that we had and like I actually broke this down for the team. Um, and in a software business, like 80% of the expenses are just people like and salaries, it's salaries. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like people building the product and doing other things. And so, you know, the tent, the tendency is like, oh, let's like cut this like $15 expense. Right. Like, but in reality, yeah. it like literally doesn't matter. It's all people. Um, so I had a series of like plans like plan a through z with like z being the least palatable and a being like the most palatable or like dominoes really um and like I, we basically just started going through the dominoes like one by one um so like the first one we did was my co-founder and i took a pay cut um like basically minimum wage like just like and like enough to have a little bit of money coming in um, the idea was like, all right, let's do that domino first, take the pay cuts, that'll drive burn down, and let's see if we can get revenue up. 
Uh, so I cut the expenses, revenue go up. That's like, you know, get to get to black. Uh, unfortunately, revenue didn't go up. So then we had uh, other members of the team take pay cuts uh, and then parted ways with a couple people um, where like it just wasn't a fit anymore. Um, like one person didn't believe, really believe in the mission, uh, the company anymore. And the other was just like the, the business model wasn't working as sales. Um, so that drove it down. Revenue still didn't go up um, by like October fast enough. So then my uh, myself and my co-founder stopped taking salaries completely um, and just like lived off our savings. Um, and then one of our other team members took another pay cut or two of them. Um, so they took like a second pay cut. Um, and then from there, we were able to get to profitability where like we had this, um, our expenses were so slashed, but our revenue was high enough where um, we were able to actually like be in the black you know, kind of going back to the reality of this situation. So, uh, you know, you have a life to live, you're earning no salary, right? You have bills to pay. And so what was that like? Kind of like at home? Um, it was hard. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, I, again, like I'm just a believer in telling the truth and being upfront. Um, so, uh, I'm actually engaged, uh, still am engaged. Um, but yeah, I kind of had to tell my fiance like, "Hey, I don't, yeah, I don't feel comfortable planning a wedding while I don't have a salary. So can we like, you know, pump this off uh, for a little while?" Um, luckily, her name's Rachel. She's awesome. She's just like super supportive and uh, believes in me. And she always says uh, every time I like have this like something crazy, like I know what I got into when I married an entrepreneur. Um, so she was supportive of it. Um, I also uh, loaned the company 10K of my own money, which like for me was a lot to keep it afloat as well. Uh, and then at the end of the year, uh, we also had two of our existing investors come through with emergency investments as well. Uh, one being Jim O'Neill, who is the former um, chief information, chief people officer at HubSpot. Um, and he gave us another um, check. And then Jess Mayer, um, who also worked at HubSpot, gave us another small check too. So. With the loan uh, and then the investments from Jess and Jim, we were able to eke by and get to profitability. But um, I'll be honest, it was it was stressful. Um, and I, I think the the thing you just can't let yourself do is get too down. And you kind of just have to like find a path, uh, like a way out and then just commit to it and just kind of like be positive and just do it and know as long as you execute on it, that there's a way out um, as well. And like the last thing I'll, I'll say on that is like a question I always ask myself whenever something like that's happening is like, what's the worst that could happen? Um, and like, again, I'm, I'm really lucky that I got an education and I taught myself how to code and like did all this work. But, you know, if the company like, ultimately failed the worst thing that was going to happen was like one I, I let my team down and um our investors down um which would stink but like most companies fail uh and then like two i would just go get a job and like recuperate um you know and like in the grand scheme of things like having your company go out of business and having to get a high paying job like isn't the worst thing in the world <laughs> true at what point did you finally feel like you could breathe again that, you know, the sales model, you figured out, you know, the self-service that you're hitting that right focus customer set. Like at what point did you feel like you could breathe again? So, um, I remember we, uh, and I think it was like January, uh, we were doing our monthly recap and I went to go run the P and L and realized we were actually profitable that month. Uh, <laughs> and I, like I had forecasted and modeled out the whole thing. And I thought it was going to be another like two to three months before that happened. Um, so it's kind of this like funny moment uh, with the team where it's like, oops, we're profitable. Um, but that was a moment where uh, I kind of felt like, okay, we're, we're not out of the clear yet, but like, we're definitely on the right path. And um, like, we're not going to lose, we didn't lose money in our bank account this month, which was definitely a win. And then from there it was, okay, how, do, how can we get the business healthier and what can we, what can we do to um, basically like take away some of the instability where like if any one thing bad happened, we would, you know, not survive it. And then you did go and, and raise more capital. So what, what 
did you think about? Like there's different vehicles for raising capital. So what were you thinking about as regards to the type of capital you'd raise? And then how did that process go in terms of actually raising the capital? Good question. Um, so we're lucky in that we have incredibly supportive investors. Um, you know, I worked with a lot of them at HubSpot. They've known me for a while um, and just like other people as well. I'm like, they're all great. Um, so the first thing I did was kind of take their temperature on the business. Um, and everyone was really supportive of us and um, happy with the progress we were making towards, um, you know, like getting back into a better place. Um, but people were a little bit concerned too with like the fact we only had like $20,000 in the bank. Um, like literally if like one, one disaster happened, we were, we were, we were dead. <laughs> um, so people said like, okay, if you can put together a, our existing investor said, if you can put together a round of like four or 500 K I'll fund it. Um, the problem with that was I knew that was going to take a decent amount of time to do. And we only had like $30,000 in the bank. So I looked at a, um, like not often used form of funding um, for SaaS companies and startups, but it's really interesting. Um, it's basically debt financing. Um, this specifically a company called Lighter Capital. And they're really interesting because they specialize in debt financing or loans for SaaS companies. So they look at your SaaS metrics and see like, oh, this is actually a healthy business and they're making money and their retention's really good um, and they're growing every month. They just don't have any assets to put down as collateral for a traditional loan. So we ended up taking a $75,000 loan from Lighter Capital, which gave us uh, a bit of breathing room and the diligence process was really easy. And then that gave me more time to go out and actually raise a funding round. So that was that like just like a reserve? You had it kind of there if you needed access to it and maybe you don't even touch it type of loan or? Yeah, um, at this time- credit line almost? What, what was that? Like a credit line almost? Yeah, basically. Um, it wasn't necessarily a credit line because like we had the cash in the bank, um, but it was it was a buffer, right? Like let's say um, there was a fire in our office or something. I mean, we have insurance. That's probably a bad example. Let's say someone's computer got stolen and we had to replace their computer. Like that wasn't going to be 10% of our operating capital or replace that. Like just a little bit of a buffer and some... Um, like gave me a little bit more headspace to actually like think strategically of what's our story and how we're going to raise funding. And then how did that process go of actually closing your most recent round? Um, so we started it, I actually just wrote a post on this today. Um, it took 193 days from end to end. Um, we started it on April 19th. Um, and the process was, um, we reached out to our existing investors first. Um, I'm a big believer in like close the lowest hanging fruit uh, early so that you can get momentum. Then that also creates social proof as well for newer investors. Um, so we sent uh, the first, or I sent the first set of emails on April 19th and then literally nothing happened for like 30 days. <laughs> um, like no one committed. People said like, yeah, I'm interested, but no one said yes. Um, and then, you know, that's when I'm like, oh, like I thought we we're going to be able to do this. And like the first round, like wasn't so challenging. Like this one's a lot harder. Um, but eventually uh, an investor came in um, for a small check, but it was a new investor from a really well-known SaaS company out in uh, San Francisco. And then I was able to use um, his name and that momentum to get our existing investors uh, over the hump and for them to say yes as well. Um, so then that gave us some momentum and we went from like nothing to 150 K in like a week or two after that. Um, and then from there, it's just like a lot of emails and, um, like trying to create, um, a sense of urgency for people. And then every time we closed a new investor, um, I made sure to message every single person who, um, like was kind of on the fence, um, which again, created social proof with each one of those investors. Um, and like, uh, basically get them to say like, yes, because it's a lot easier when you see a name you recognize or a company that you recognize and see like, oh, well that person's in and they're, if they're in, that means it's like probably, uh, like a good deal. Like I should come in as well. And the round ended up being oversubscribed. 
Yeah, so we had a target of 400K, um, and it took from April to the beginning of August to hit the 400K. Um, about half of the 400K came from existing investors and the other half came from new investors. And then once we had the 400K and like the target, which is your kind of minimum that you commit to raising so like everyone's comfortable, um, it's like that's that's the minimum we need to get to our next milestone, which for us was to get back to like real profitability, um, like give everyone salaries again, our full salaries. Um, but yeah, once you have the, once you have the target amount hit, it becomes a lot easier to close other checks because it's, there's actually, there's actually a real sense of urgency where it's like, look, we're going to stop fundraising in like a month. And if you want to get in on this, like you have to make a decision now, if you don't want to, that's okay. But like, you have to actually make a quick decision. Now your company, like it's pretty, um, you know, your, your team was relatively small and I assume it's kind of like an all hands on deck. Everybody's wearing different hats depending on the day. How do you balance your time running a business, growing a business to, you know, fundraising, which sounds like it's just so, so time consuming. Um, so it's hard. Like fundraising is always hard. It's kind of ironic. It starts with fun. Um, <laughs> but, um, I'm really lucky where I have a co-founder and he's great. And I just like 100% trust him. I've known him for like almost 50% of my life. So we're able to split it where Nelson is able to keep building the product and keep that going. And um, with our CTO, Shawnee as well, and she's awesome. Um, and then I was able to focus on fundraising um, as well, um, or instead. Um, but like fundraising is the type of thing where you just have to be Boolean or like, Sorry, that was engineering <laughs> reference. You have to be like all in, like 100% committed on it because if you're not, it just drags out and takes forever. And there were times where like I had to refocus refocus back on the business and you could see, like I could just feel the momentum slowing down in the fundraise. And I actually charted out like all the commitments we had um, and you can actually like see in the chart, um, like the time-based chart, like where I got distracted and wasn't focused on fundraising. And then- like made it drag out. Um, so yeah, I mean, like the advice I would have is like, have a really good co-founder you trust that can like keep uh, building the business while you're focused externally um, on 100% fundraising. Uh, kind of closing things out here, you know, continuing the theme of transparency. Um, you know, you're very transparent with your employees but you also did a good job managing your investors in terms of that transparency with uh, did you send out a monthly email, kind of like a, a monthly update or was it quarterly? And like, how often did you communicate with your investors and like, what would you share with them? We send out a monthly update, um, like at the very beginning of every month. And I'm just a huge believer in sending out updates to your investors. And I mean, the main reason is like, we, we have mostly angel investors, um, but like, these are people trusting you with their personal money. And I think they have a right to know generally what's going on. Um, but, um, you know, you don't want to be doing like phone calls with every single person one-on-one -on -one because that would just eat up too much time. So what we do is I have a template um, and a spreadsheet uh, where I am able to easily pull all of our numbers every month, pull them into the template. And then I just write a quick summary of um, like our numbers, our challenges, our successes, what's next up. And then I always have a section at the very top called how you can help. Um, and, oh, I, sorry, I start off with how you can help and then thank yous. Um, and the thank yous are important. Um, and they're just like, you know, thanks for sharing this or like, thanks for this introduction, but the thank yous are important because they create, um, almost like competition among your investors to be most helpful. Um, and it's just like good to thank people publicly. Um, but the good thing about the updates are that, um, our investors always knew what was going on. And so the fact we were running out of money and like things weren't going as well as we wanted, that wasn't a surprise to them. Like they knew they were supportive and it kind of was just like, uh, let's just get this all out in the open um, with them. Um, but because they knew it was going on when they, then when they saw us turning it around, they were much more likely to support us and give us follow on investment. Um, and that was because like we had shown a history of like being gritty and not um, like we've shown a history of being gritty 
and not, um, you know, like trying to hide our problems from everyone. The how you can help section, where, what do you think is most beneficial to add in there? Like wh- where did you see the most traction when you would ask for, for help somewhere? Um, I mean, the most beneficial one was when we needed more money. Um, and so like intros I, to other angels. Yeah, I, it was two. It was, please make a follow on investment. Right. Um, and if you know any other angels who might be interested, that would be very helpful to get the intro. Mm-hmm. Um, on the follow on investment, we had an investor who I haven't talked to since the original um, round that we did in like April 2016. And in one of the how you can help sections um, that I sent down in a monthly update, he just replied back, like, I'm in for another 50K. And like, that's literally all I said, because he'd been reading the updates, right? And like knew what was going on and saw that we were turning it around. Um, and then like intros to other angels are always so, so helpful because again, there's that social proof um, of the introduction. Whereas like a cold email out to someone like is always a little bit, it's not as powerful. What's next for Tetra? Um, so we're trying to hit a million ARR. Um, I have not figured out what, uh, the, what the celebration will be. I've already done the puzzle, so I don't, I don't know what to do next, but, uh, if anyone has an idea, uh, please reach out. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to share all these great stories and going deep in terms of your business. Uh, you know, there's the, uh, celebrations that, Obviously, I hope you hit that million dollar ARR. Uh, but also, there's the, hit the million dollar ARR. <laughs> yeah, and then there's obviously the uh, you know there's the the downside of building a business, and you don't always hear those stories as often. So thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.